0: All right, well, welcome to those who uh, are here in the room with us and to those of you that are joining us uh, on one of our streaming platforms. Thank you for being here with us for tonight's uh, equip session. We look forward to spending some time uh, in the second part of uh, our... All right talk about Sola Scriptura, the first of the five solas that we're talking about as a part of this EQUIP session. This is your first time with us, your first time joining us um, this uh, winter in, in EQUIP, what I'm teaching on is the five solas of the Reformation, uh, so the scripture alone, by grace alone, but through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, and we'll spend two weeks on each one of those subjects Uh been really kind of following this same pattern that we uh, have followed last week and this week where I'll talk about the doctrine uh, for in week one, which is what I talked about last week that uh, the scripture is authoritative and because of the scripture is authoritative meaning that there is no other um uh, authority. not that there are no other authorities, but there is no other earthly authority that rises to the level of Scripture as it relates to what it teaches us about God and what it teaches us about how we can know God and be saved by Him and follow Him uh, in obedience. And then because of that, the Scripture is sufficient to tell us everything God wants us to know. It is necessary um, to know what the Scripture says for uh, matters of salvation. The Scripture is clear, meaning you don't need uh, some special mediator to tell you what the Scripture says, but you can read Scripture yourself, um, and that um, the, because of these things, the Scripture is inerrant, meaning it does not err, that because it is the Word of God and God cannot lie, what the Scripture affirms is what God uh, has said to us, and we can then trust the Scripture. And so that's just you know, a 30-second overview of what we talked about for an hour last week with the doctrine of Scripture, and what we'll do today is... Think about why that mattered then, because that's what we're talking about in this, is what why, what were these doctrines, what are these doctrines, and why did they matter during the Reformation, and kind of what has progressed over the last five centuries to the point of why does it still matter today, and what I hope to be able to, I have a lot to talk about today, but what I hope to be able to get to by the end is... Um, what would we do if someone wanna ask us about this? How do do we ensure that this doctrine is passed on um, both in our church and our families and then to others who may ask about it? So uh, that's what we're gonna do here in a minute after we pray. I got a couple other things I need to talk about. I'm gonna save one to the end and and just briefly address one today because um, just about everybody that came in as I was over here in conversations uh, or people talking to me, uh, everybody gets all worked up because it might snow this weekend oh my goodness we just don't even know what to do we are beside ourselves uh, because the white stuff may come so my prediction if you want to know is uh, we're not going to get a whole lot of snow you just it's just not going to happen that's my prediction though and I'm you know who knows I may be as accurate as the weathermen right now Um, so so, but people already started wanting to know I heard somebody told me I'm not going to Say bad thing. I won't say who, but uh, I know of a church in our area that has already canceled church for Sunday. Um, that is not what we're going to do. So if you're going to ask me, or we are going to have church on Sunday? I will tell you. Check with me Saturday night. Maybe even check with me Sunday morning. So our general rule of pr- of thumb is, if I can get here, I'm going to come here and preach. And if you would like to come listen, you can. And if our uh, tech guys can get here, which I believe they'll be able to, uh, we'll be online. And if Brian can get here, we may even have some music, okay? Uh, if it's just me, it won't, there won't be any music. There'll just be a sermon. But I've prepared a sermon this week, and I have every intention of preaching it Sunday morning. Now, there have been a couple of times in my six and a half years here where because of snow, twice because of snow and once because of a hurricane, we didn't have Sunday morning service. And um, it was because I couldn't get here. And uh, if I can't get here, then I I can't get here. But I don't think that's going to be the case this weekend. We may call on you. Our Building and Grounds team may call on some men of the church to come help us shovel snow if we need to shovel off sidewalks. But we'll kind of make that call on Saturday once we kind of see what this thing does uh, tomorrow night into Friday. It looks like it's going to all... Whatever happens is going to have happened by daybreak on Saturday morning. So we're going to kind of get a pretty good idea of what we're dealing with. Going into Sunday, um, so my encouragement is: watch uh, uh, our website. We'll put it on the front page of our website. We'll put it on our Facebook page. Um, we'll we'll email. We'll do a churchwide email. We'll have small group leaders calling people. We'll do everything that we can. If we have to change something with the schedule, okay. And so just don't panic. We've got lots of time. You don't need to know today if we're having in-person service on Sunday morning. If you ask me today, my answer is absolutely. We're having in-person service on Sunday morning, okay? We'll make that call once we kind of see what, what's happening with, uh, with the snow, because I've lived in the South long enough to know you don't believe them until it happens, okay? So that's what we're going to go with, and then we'll do our very best. So let me pray for us, and then we'll uh, head into this uh, session together. Father, thank you uh, for Uh, Our ability to gather for technology that allows people to be with us, God, we know that we still have people in our church who uh, aren't able to be here because them or someone in their family is still unwell. Um, and they're taking the precautions of not being here with us. And while we appreciate that, we're also grateful, God, that we can be in their living rooms, so we can uh, be on their phones, maybe even podcasted later in the week for people uh, as they travel to work or take their lunch breaks. And and Father, wherever we uh, are, I'm just grateful that uh, we have the ability to Uh, study together and think well together and be equipped for the work of ministry together. God, so would you bless this time as we talk more about what it means to uh, value Scripture alone as the authority uh, over matters of life and godliness uh, for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this second part, why sola scriptura, why the Bible alone mattered, past tense, and why it matters now. Why are we still thinking that this is important and what are some modern challenges to it and what uh, are some questions that we could ask as people may challenge that and what are some questions we need to ask as we think about uh, passing it along. Now we started with Sola Scriptura, all of these, we're really doing these in an intentional order the reason that we started with this one, even though the primary debate in uh, the early 1500s, mid-1500s when the Reformation started to rage in Germany and other places was around uh, justification. What is it that saves a person? And we addressed that two weeks ago. What is it that saves a person? Was the, ended up being the, the big question that was trying to be uh, asked and answered by the Reformers and the Catholic Church who are going back and forth, ultimately leading to the Council of Trent, where for the Catholics they decided that in uh, official form, and you ended up with the breaking away of uh, Reformed churches or, uh, Reformation churches in the 1500s. But we don't really start with grace alone and faith alone, which speak directly to the question of salvation. Where we start is with Scripture, because Scripture is what informs the rest of it. And we can't have a discussion about what does it mean to be saved by grace alone, or what does it mean to be saved by faith alone, or what does it mean to believe in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, or even uh, that, that this is all for the glory of God alone. We, we can't do any of that without defining terms. And one of the terms, really the primary term that we have to define is, what are we going to rely on for our basis of authority? What is it that we are going to subscribe to and say, uh, if I believe X and you believe Y, where are we going to go to determine if X is true or if Y is true? This is where, why we have to start with this discussion, that it is the scripture alone, and we'll see what was happening in the 1500s here in just a moment. Some of which I alluded to last week, but I'm going a little more detail this week. And then we'll also see how that has progressed over the centuries uh, since the time of the Reformation to continually be challenged. We go on this, we run this regular cycle um, in. Uh, Christianity and and secular influence within Christianity to kind of challenge this doctrine, this doctrine of scripture alone gets challenged on on a cycle that really amounts to about once a century, right? Some new challenge to it pops up and uh, kind of rears its head and the church has to to deal with it Um, because this is the ultimate question for us is if we're going to have discussions about what does it mean to be a Christian, how does one become a Christian, uh, what what does it mean to be in the faith, we have to have a, a foundational, we have to have a foundation, we have to have a place that we go and say this is this is what we're going to rely on as our authority. And as I taught last week, uh, what the reformers were saying and where we still stand today, as Luther said, here I stand, I can do no other, uh, we stand on the scripture alone as uh, the inerrant word of God, authoritative in our lives for all matters to which it speaks uh, and that it is necessary unto salvation and it is sufficient in all that God would have us to know. And I can go to the scriptures and you can go to the scriptures and it be clear to us if we read them with spiritual eyes that God gives us uh, that births new life in, our, in us and then allows us to be obedient to him. This is what we say, this is what we mean when we say sola scriptura, and this is why it mattered then and why it matters now and honestly why it will matter to the end of time. So let's talk about what was going on in um, 1517. Uh, and later. And it was really, was going on before that. I'm going to talk about two guys that predate Martin Luther. We always think about Martin Luther as being kind of the guy that started the Reformation. And that's not really true. Uh, There were guys before him, we kind of call them pre-Reformers. Luther really set the spark in uh, the Uh, Early 1500s that that set Europe ablaze with the Reformation, but there are guys before him, and uh, well, well, Luther was accused of being like them, and uh, I'll get to that here in just a moment. But here's here's as far as it relates to this doctrine, and with every one of these doctrines, in the second session we're going to go back to the 1500s. We're going to look at what was going on and ask some questions about okay, why was that doctrine important for these people, for Luther and others? Because Luther's not the only one, Um, but He's going to be a primary target here in, in what we're talking about today. but why was why was this important to them? what was going on in those days doctrinally? And there's really three things that that were happening in that time that caused Luther to directly challenge uh, the basis of authority of, the Church in that day, which we would refer to as the Roman Catholic Church, they didn't refer it to that way in the 1500s. They just called it the Church because, well, in truth, that's what it was. At least in Europe, um, that's that's what it was. It was the Church. There weren't other ones. There was just that one, and uh, and it was the Church. And Luther, in 1517, uh, nails the 95 Theses to the door, saying we've got we've got some problems in the Church. Well, what were those problems? Because he addressed multiple. What were the problems as it related to? Uh, the idea of sola scriptura. Well, there are three. First, it's an idea of papal infallibility, which I'm going to define for you in a minute. Let me just tell you the three papal infallibility, the doctrine and application of what's known as indulgences, which I'll explain for you in a minute, and then the final, final one is the doctrine of purgatory, which is kind of a afterlife way station, if you will, right? And these three, these three things are interconnected. So I'm going to kind of tell you what's, what was going on in the history of this, and we'll be able to see kind of how they, how they were interconnected, right? The papal infallibility is the doctrine that the Pope cannot err when teaching on matters of faith or morals. And what's interesting is um, that was not an official doctrine of the church in the 1500s. Uh, it was a practice doctrine of the church, and it had been a practice doctrine of the church uh, throughout um, the the Middle Ages. So throughout the Middle Ages, what the Pope said, um, what was was what God said. I mean that that's the way they that's the way that it was approached. You, you did not challenge the words of the Pope. Uh, you did not challenge the authority of the Pope, uh, even in many cases throughout many centuries, even about things that weren't about faith or morals. If the Pope somehow insinuated that they were about faith and morals, then the word of the Pope was uh, without error. It was infallible. It's interesting, though, that uh, even during this time, that was not codified. That was not Catholic dogma. That it is now Catholic dogma, but it did not become so until 1870, until the, what was known as the First Vatican Council which took place in the 19th century uh, over the course of about two years, 18, I think it was 1869 and 1870 was the Vatican Council. And one of the things the Vatican Council did was it made dogma the idea of papal infallibility. Now that doesn't mean, what they say now isn't necessarily what they were saying back then. Uh, What was really being practiced back then, even without the dogma being written into church doctrine, is that the, the Pope did not err. The Pope was infallible. What Catholics today, since um, the First Vatican Council, and really it was even clarified in the 20th century at the Second Vatican Council, is that the Pope cannot err in specific circumstances, right? So um, it's called, when he's speaking from his chair, which which means when he's speaking from a position of authority, uh, that's the way that they would define, because I want to be fair to Catholics today, uh, that was that's the way that Catholics would define papal infallibility today. It's not just if the Pope's walking down the street, everything he says is infallible like it would have been for Jesus, uh, but that when he is speaking in an official context as the Pope of the Catholic Church from his seat of authority, uh, he is infallible. What was happening in Luther's day was different than that. What was happening in Luther's day was you just didn't challenge the Pope. It was heretical to challenge the Pope, particularly on matters of faith or morals. If the Pope said something that the church believed or the church did, you didn't question it in Luther's day, even though it wasn't codified in uh, dogma. And so this was held and practiced firmly throughout the Middle Ages up to the time of the Reformation. So in 1517, uh, one of the things that Luther is undermining even though he's not directly addressing it one of the things that Luther is undermining is papal infallibility is because some of the doctrines that Luther is going to challenge in his 95 theses and later aren't found in scripture they were doctrines of the church that the the pope and not just the pope, but the cardinals through the through the church through tradition, as we'll we'll call it, that through tradition the church had affirmed these doctrines, and even in in Luther's terms, created many of these doctrines uh, in and of themselves, not based off of the practice of scripture or the authority of scripture, but based off of the authority of the pope and of the church to create new. Uh, doctrines. And so he challenges some of these doctrines. As when I, two weeks ago when I kind of presented the history of this, we talked about him challenging some of those doctrines. And it was really an academic discussion at first. A couple of years later, in 1520, uh, right about the time that Luther is being kicked out of the church, he was excommunicated in 1520, um, he went to a debate. Luther himself was not challenged to this debate. Um, one of Luther's kind of protégés was challenged to the debate. But Luther went anyway, and Luther ends up being the guy debating. And this is happening in Leipzig in, in 1520. And Luther debates a Catholic theologian, one of the great Catholic theologians of the day, known as John Eck. That's how we would say it in English. It's actually Johann von Eck in uh, German. Now, but John Eck is, uh, was this great German Catholic theologian, and he is very loyal to the Pope, very loyal to the church, and is is out for blood with Luther. and so Luther shows up at this debate and ends up uh, debating in Leipzig in 1520 uh, John Eck. The primary subject being the initial subject being papal authority. and John Eck is the one who 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 proposed that and I think rightly so like he saw the same thing that we see looking back on it in hindsight and that is, Uh, wherever your foundation is, that's going to determine everything else. And so we have to define terms of what is actually going to be our authority for matters of faith and what is not going to be our authority. So for the first question that Eck poses to Luther is, is the Pope infallible or not? And so Luther looks back over the, the tradition of the church, really about a thousand year tradition of the church and argues that the fathers erred, the church, therefore church tradition contained errors, and so he then would only trust them if they provided evidence in Scripture. So Luther didn't say, let's just do away. Remember, he's a reformer. The idea was reformation of the Catholic Church. Luther, at that point, did not want to start a new church. He wanted to reform the church that he was already a part of. And so he didn't say, "Let's do away with tradition totally. Let's do away with the teachings of the church totally." He said, "Let's check the teachings of the church against Scripture, not against my ideas, not against your ideas. But let's just check them against Scripture, because the the, the fathers' meaning—it was Luther's word for it—but uh, previous generations of church leaders had error, had erred. They they, they had gone wrong in certain things, and there are. Uh, several examples I don't have time to go into today of the places but from 500 AD to 1500 AD where uh, the Catholic Church had significant errors and they had to correct those errors. There were, there were times where there were two or three different people claiming to be Pope at the same time during the Middle Ages. And these people taught all manner of things. And so uh, Luther says, we ought to check everything that they have against Scripture. Ultimately leading Eck to accuse him of being a heretic... And he appeals to two people that were alive in the 1400s. One of them, um, a guy you've very likely heard of, uh, named Wycliffe. Right? Wycliffe Bible translators is named after this guy because he's the first guy to take the Bible from Latin and translate. He translated into Middle English, and and the church, the Catholic Church, was not very happy about that um, at all. Uh, and another guy that you've probably not ever heard of, who was um, who would have been from what would be today like the Czech Republic, um, named John Hus. And so John Wycliffe copied the Bible in English uh, in the late, so like about 130, 140 years before, Luther. So this is really a forerunner of the whole idea of sola scriptura, Um, and he professed that a a person could be saved outside of the Roman Catholic Church. That was a huge challenge because remember this was the only church that really existed. And Wycliffe said, hey, if people could read their Bibles on their own, this was his rationale, right? If people could read their Bibles on their own in the language that they understood, because nobody understood Latin except for the priesthood. Uh, If they could read the Bible on their own, then maybe they could understand it and maybe they could be saved by it and maybe they wouldn't need you to do this for them. And they didn't like Wycliffe for that. Wycliffe ended up dying um, before he was found to be a heretic. They they didn't like him. Um, And there's some debate over whether he was able to translate the whole New Testament or if he was himself just able to translate uh, the Gospels and others translated it. The whole, the whole New Testament was translated into English about the same year that he died. Uh, what's interesting, though, is sometime later, uh, a few decades later, um, the Catholic Church actually dug his body up. This is a true story. They dug his body up and burned him as a heretic um, post right? So after he had died, that's kind of a weird thing, a weird little historical fact for you, um, is that he was burned at the stake, even like decades after he had died. Um, John uh, John Huss, the other theologian that that Eck accused Luther of being like was not so fortunate to be burned at the stake after he he died. He was burned at the stake uh, for being a heretic. He taught that Peter and the popes after him uh, were not ever and are not now the head of the church. So, you can see why Eck accused Luther of being like Wycliffe and like Huss, because Wycliffe believed in the scripture alone, that the scripture could lead people to salvation. Huss believed that the pope was not the head of the church. And so, what Luther was doing is he was taking the, he was really building off of those two ideas and combining them into one, saying the pope is not infallible, the scripture is infallible. And if you look at writings about this, this is what's interesting. This debate lasted a very long time, and they took a break. And actually, before the break, um, Luther kind of fought vehemently uh, against the idea that he was like these guys. They, like that they took Luther back a little bit that he was being put into the camp of two guys that both of which, one before he was. Uh, One while he was alive and one after he was dead, burned at the stake. Luther took offense to that. On break, Luther does a little bit of soul searching and comes back into uh, the place where they're hosting hosting the debate, comes back and states plainly, yes, I am in the line of Wycliffe and Huss, that the Pope cannot, this is what Luther says then, the Pope cannot create new doctrines and only those doctrines derived from scripture must be believed. It's at this point where the uh, where, where Luther has really drawn his line in the sand. Now it would be later, right at the Diet of Worms, where Luther would be asked to recant, and he does not recant. Um, uh, own penalty of death. He it does. He is not martyred and really because of the following that he had created the catholic church was afraid Um, but but it's really in this moment that luther is siding with people that the church had considered heretics he's siding with people that he himself had probably at one point in his life considered to be heretics and so he takes that stand there right against papal infallibility now keep that keep that debate in your mind because we're going to come back to it here in just a second let's talk about indulgences and purgatory for just a second Indulgences are the sale of really pieces of paper, right, um, that acknowledged a donation or a, some other kind of charitable work, and it was known as an indulgence. Uh, that's what the piece of paper was known as, but it, 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 it was kind of a receipt for money you had given to the church or work that you had done in the name of the church that certified that your soul would enter heaven more quickly by reducing your time in purgatory, uh, if you had committed no serious sin uh, that guaranteed your place in hell, what we known as, you know as the seven deadly sins, the mortal sins, right? If you had not done any any of the mortal sins, then um, you could essentially through indulgences buy your way out of hell or out of either, you could buy your way out of purgatory, which was kind of that way station, right, between heaven and hell where you would go to pay for unrepentant sin and atone for unrepentant sin that you had in this uh, life Um, what ends up happening in luther's day and this is why luther a challenge why it's important for sola scriptura right Uh, pope leo the 10th began to grant indulgences to raise money for the rebuilding of saint peter's basilica in rome uh, so St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, which is a familiar historical site to us, still exists in Vatican City uh, today it, it needed to be rebuilt. And so the Pope was selling indulgences for that purpose. Now, he wasn't the first Pope to sell indulgences. That had been going on for the better part of a thousand years, or at least the better part of 500 years or more. And uh, they had been sold for all manner of things, but it had become a big business. And it had become a big business in, in all places in Germany, where Luther is. And there was a guy who, who, there were multiple, but there was one guy specifically um, whose last name was Tetzel. And Tetzel like made a living out of selling papal indulgences. This is what this guy did. And he was, he was like a used car salesman. I mean, that's, that's the best analogy that I have for Tetzel. If you read anything about him, um, he like had a sales pitch, right? And he was out preaching, not very far from Wittenberg, where Luther is, he's out preaching that you can buy these indulgences and that these indulgences are better than salvation itself. Like if you have this piece of paper, uh, you could, and this was like on authority from the Pope, from Pope Leo X, you could really reset your sin count to zero that it would be as if you were a newly baptized infant if you would buy this. And to make this even better, right? If you had loved ones who had died and you were pretty sure they were in purgatory because the Catholic doctrine of purgatory pretty much puts everybody there, at least for some period of time. Some people there for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, okay? And you got a loved one that died and you're pretty sure they're in purgatory. Hey, you could buy an indulgence for them. So not only are we burning heretics at the stake after they're dead, but we're buying indulgences for people after they're dead. And you don't even need to be a good Christian to do it. So you don't have to be in right standing with the church to give your money to the church to buy someone else's way out of purgatory. So you could buy your own way out of purgatory. You could buy somebody else's way out of purgatory. And and these, these pieces of paper were like gold. Um, the in the book that I've recommended to you out there, in the section where he's writing about this, he calls them the bingo cards of the 16th century. Right? Like it was like this this thing you wanted to have these indulgences. This was this was a really valuable thing, and Luther was gravely concerned about the way in which people were seeing themselves as getting into heaven based off of some type of financial transaction. Now it didn't just get to this point, right? It took centuries for it to get to this point. It was centuries of the practice of indulgen- of indulgences where people were giving, where people were doing things. By the way, you got indulgences, people who fought for the Crusades, like that was an indulgence, okay? Like fighting in the Crusades for the, you know, roman empire for the catholic church that that was was an indulgence and some indulgences applied in different ways they even got to a point where indulgences were sold based off of the number of years it would cut you out of purgatory so there was like a monetary scale right that wouldn't mean anything to us today because money's different now but you know hey look you give a hundred dollars to the church it's going to buy you a year out of purgatory right? Like that, that, that's how the system over the course of centuries had developed within the Catholic church to where by the time we get to the 16th century, um, you, you've got literal used car salesmen, right? Out there just hawking indulgences and the Pope who wants to rebuild the Vatican is, is all for it. Okay. So he's, he's encouraging this. He's the one uh, signing them. So while indulgence is what is Luther's only disagreement with the institution, um, it was a major one. It was really like he looked around and most of the 95 Theses, I would say the majority of them dealt with the selling of indulgences because, I mean, my goodness, like this is how people were, were getting into heaven. So let's go back to that debate, right, in, in Leipzig, The debate moved from uh, the subject of papal infallibility to the subject of purgatory, right? So papal infallibility was was the question uh, in theory, right? What is our authority? Purgatory then becomes the question of practice. Are we going to believe in something that the Bible itself does not teach about because the Pope has told us, the church tradition has told us to, uh, or are we not? And so Eck seeks to counter Luther and quotes from an apocryphal book. I think he quoted from 2 Maccabees. It's one of the apocryphal books. It's one of the books uh, that was written between the time of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's never been considered, and it was not considered until, I think, Trent, uh, the Council of Trent. Uh, the apocryphal books were never considered to be part of the canon. In Jesus' day, they were not considered by the Hebrews to be a part of the Old Testament canon. And the Christian church adopted the Hebrew Bible as the Old Testament. And so we, the early church did not consider them to be. Uh, part of part of Christian Scripture, they were considered writings. And some church fathers considered them um, helpful writings, but not not on the same level as the Old and the and the New Testament. And so Luther then says, "Well, that's not in the Bible," and but the Pope had relied on that to, or the Church had relied on that to establish this doctrine of purgatory. So really, what Luther ends up doing is he denies the authority of. The church, he denies the authority of tradition by saying that purgatory ultimately was a false doctrine. Now, he doesn't come out right there and say purgatory is a false doctrine. He says purgatory is not in the Bible, so we don't have to believe it. Later in Luther's life, he he, he goes after purgatory hard, right, and um, ends up ends up having some very um, significant words for for purgatory later uh, later in his life. So so this is 1520, right. And early in the Reformation, I we're three years into the Reformation. This is early. The Reformation goes on for decades. The Catholics don't even address it for another couple of decades, right? Um, they don't get around to having the Council of Trent for like four, to, ultimately four decades. So we're in, we're in the infancy of this thing. And what's the big question? Are we going to listen to the Bible or not? The big question, the first question is what is our authority going to be? Is it going to be scripture? Is it going to be something else? So it mattered. So we say, well, okay, why did the doctrine of sola scriptura matter? It mattered because the reformers needed to establish something as their foundation of authority. They had to ask that question. What are we going to go to and say, if we have a disagreement over a doctrine, what are we going to go to to try to determine who is right and who is wrong? Are we going to go to tradition? Are we going to go to papal infallibility? Are we going to go to the scripture alone? And what the reformers settled on earlier, I mean, think about what, this is 1520. This is right at the beginning. We're fledgling still at this point. Um, and Luther says, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna if, if it's not taught in scripture, we're, we don't, you, someone's not required to believe it. I believe really what he said, because he expounded on it. It was something along the lines of, if there's something in church tradition that's not in the Bible, if you want to believe it, that's fine. You can believe it, but nobody can be required to believe it because it's not in the Bible. Like that's the, that's the initial step that Luther takes, uh, in 1520. Now he, he ultimately takes additional steps later, uh, after he, once he's kicked out of the church, once uh diet of worms happens, Luther stops mincing words, um, But at this point, that's what he said. But that's really the foundation of it, right? So that's the question. Why did it matter? It mattered because we had to determine what the authority was going to be. And the church explodes over the course of the next, I don't know, 150 years in Europe. And then eventually in what would become the United States, um, Reformation marches on. Um, you end up, you end up with some churches like Anabaptists and um, others who we're not in the line of Anabaptists. We're in the line of of the London Baptist Confession, British Baptist, I've taught on that a couple of years ago. Um, nonetheless, um, you, you end up with. What, we, what you could consider like extreme reform churches, churches that, that maybe went too far. Maybe we would even look back on and say they went too far. There were definitely reformers that thought they went too far. And these things were happening in pockets in England and Switzerland uh, and Eastern Europe. Uh, but pretty much Germany becomes all, you know, becomes all Lutheran. England becomes all Anglican. I mean, these things spread and these things spread uh, very, uh, very quickly. And so that's kind of that first cycle, that first challenge. The first challenge was kind of church against church. It was Catholic church, the Roman Catholic church against the, the reformers. And then something else happens in Europe, spreads to um, at uh, that point, at the beginning of it at least, what would become the United States. Uh, and it was known as the Enlightenment. And uh, the Enlightenment rears a new challenge uh, against uh, Sola Scriptura, and that the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment is kind of like postmodernity. It's a little hard to nail to the wall and say, this is when it started, and this is when it stopped, and this is everything that it believed. But nonetheless, uh, the Enlightenment, particularly in the 18th century, it bleeds over uh, into the early part of the 19th century. But we're talking about the 1700s here for the most part, very, very late 1600s, some of the writings. With all of these things, like it was with Wycliffe, there's always some, some early people, right? That are a little too early and nobody listens to. And then eventually everybody listens to. And that happens with the enlightenment. There was some early writings in the 1600s, but eventually by the 1700s, it's the, it's the rage of the day. And what the enlightenment said was that one's own reason and intellect was all that was needed to discover truth. That we didn't need an outside source. We didn't need a top-down authority, right? We didn't need authority of scripture all I needed was my own reason and intellect. So then the the enlightenment and, and uh, particularly in uh, academic circles, and, and a lot of this stuff starts in academic circles. It, it started in, we see that still in our day today. We've seen that throughout history. What starts in academic circles and um, social elites end up, finding its way into the social mainstream and ends up challenging positions of the church. And that's exactly what happens. So you end up with popular books being written uh, about reason. Um, and um, uh, John Locke, you've heard of John Locke? Like John Locke wrote a, a book on um, the reasonable nature of Christianity. Was that the name of the book? The re- anyway, um, Locke writes some some works on this. Like the, you end up with these with lots of people starting to think in an enlightened way about Christianity, and it ends up challenging Sola Scriptura. It ends up challenging the Bible alone in a couple of different ways. One of the challenges was to the necessity of scripture, because if one's own reason and intellect was all that was needed to discover truth, then what does that mean about what we've said to be true about the necessity of scripture? Then Scripture is not necessary. Because the Enlightenment says that one's own reason is all, not part, but all that one needs. So I don't need God to tell me anything. I don't need the Bible to tell me anything. I don't need the church to tell me anything. I don't need anybody, right? So the those the, the people that were writing to the Enlightenment period would have agreed with Luther in that, I don't need, you know, papal infallibility. I don't need the Pope or tradition or you know, church fathers telling me what to believe. I don't need any of them, but then they would have disagreed with they would have then turned on Luther and said, but I also don't need your Bible. (laughs) Um, All I need is my own reason and intellect and I'll eventually get there. So man didn't have to have scripture um, to, it wasn't they were denying God, they weren't. It wasn't that they were denying even, particularly early on in the enlightenment, they weren't even denying any real substantial portion of christian doctrine they were just beginning to say they were chipping away at that same foundation this is this is what you're going to see as we kind of walk through these stages of history there's always this chipping away of this, the authority of scripture and because if you can attack the foundation what's the easiest way to you know tear a building down well in our day we'd say blow it up right but, you know what's the what's the Attack its foundation, right? If you can attack a foundation, the whole thing falls. Well, that's that's what was happening here. It also challenges the sufficiency of Scripture, because the sufficiency of Scripture says that the Bible tells us everything that we know need to know about God and about His salvation and about obedience to Him. But the Enlightenment said all you need is reason and intellect. And so, if all you need is reason and intellect, then man could find everything. Man couldn't find everything in, in Scripture. I, I need I need me. I need my own reason. I need my own under my own understanding. So ultimately, the the uh, Enlightenment affects Christianity. This is actually in that book. He talks about these three stages um, in that uh, in that sola scriptura book that's out in the in the uh, connect and the at, connect at the equip center. So there's, there's three stages really that we see in the 17th century, kind of this progression um, through the Enlightenment. The first is that Christianity was seen as reasonable, like John Locke's book and others like. What people were trying to say is that is that um, Christianity, is, 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 it fits. They weren't trying to deny Christianity, many of them. They weren't trying to deny Christianity. They were looking at their secular counterparts and saying, Christianity, when you reduce it to its core tenets, is a reasonable religion. That was stage one. Stage two, though, then said, well, if Christianity is a reasonable religion then the tenets of Christianity could be derived from reason and not from Scripture. So it stands to reason, right, that if Christianity is a reasonable religion, then I should be able to get there based off of the tenets of the Enlightenment, not off of the tenets of the Reformation, that I don't need scripture alone, I just need reason and intellect alone, and if I'm going to use reason and intellect alone, because if Christianity is actually a reasonable religion, then I could be able I could get to the I could get to the tenets of Christianity without scripture. By the time we get to the end of the enlightenment, Christianity is judged against human reason. With human reason being exalted over scripture, and they didn't just do this to Scripture, by the way, they did this to the Catholic Church as well. So the Enlightenment challenged both what is now the Protestant Church and it challenged the Catholic Church. It's challenging the Protestant Church in its stance on sola scriptura, it's challenging the Catholic Church on its stance on tradition, and it challenges both. And here's what it says that if you've got if you've got some kind of external authority on one hand for Protestants, the Scripture, for Catholics, tradition, this external authority right? And I have reason and intellect. Where you end up at the end of the enlightenment is reason and intellect wins. Reason and intellect becomes the judge, right? It sits in judgment over the other two. Therefore, it was the reasonable person's responsibility to determine what was correct in scripture and what was not. And this is how we end up with... um, Thomas Jefferson's Bible in, you know, the Smithsonian with all the pages cut out. Thomas Jefferson was a product of the Enlightenment, okay? It's what he was. He was a naturalist. And and so this is where you ended up with. You ended up with people saying, well, this part doesn't fit, and this part doesn't make sense, and this part doesn't make sense. And they saw no problem with it because by the end, what's what's the ultimate arbiter? The ultimate arbiter during the Enlightenment is reason, And if I can reason my way to take this part out of the Bible or to take this part out of the Bible, I can do it. Ultimately leading to what I think was the dominant religion of our founding fathers. And this may surprise some of you because everybody, America was founded by Christians. Well, some of them were. A lot of them were what's known as deists. That's really where we end up in the late uh, 1700s is we end up with a lot of people who ultimately were deists. And what a deist is... um, a deist is someone who believed God created the world, and, and so they believe in a God, which the word deit right, comes from the Latin, right? So it's it's believing in a God, right? They do believe in God. And he could even be the Christian God. That's fine. It's, they would Many of them would affirm, okay, yeah, this is the God of the Bible, but he created the world in such a way that it functions independently, and then he doesn't need to intervene. So things like miracles, we don't need to believe in that. Um, things like Jesus dying for our sins being resurrected we we don't need to believe in that Uh, all we need to believe in is that God you know created this thing and set it spinning and has, you know kind of now divorced himself from it because that what God started in the beginning will just kind of keep happening and and it doesn't really matter he's not really set to intervene so then ultimately creation and man's response reasoned understanding of it surplants scripture as the foundation of religious belief that what we see in nature what we experience in nature and and how we reason that out in our own minds becomes the authority so the first challenge to sola scriptura was during the reformation and it was church tradition the second challenge is in the enlightenment and Uh, its appeal to reason and intellect. The Enlightenment gives way to theological liberalism. Theological liberalism's heyday was the um, 19th century, the 1800s, spilling some into uh, the 1900s. And uh, theological liberalism was a rebranding of Christianity to accommodate enlightened ideas. And so we start seeing... um, Places like Harvard and Yale and Princeton, places that were that some still today have theology schools that are just are hardly you can hardly categorize them as theology schools uh, from from a you know a, you know evangelical Protestant understanding of what we would think of as a theology school. Um, but that's that's what those universities were, and what ended up happening is the Enlightenment had so much an effect there that they end up running towards. Um, theological liberalism. So, really, theological liberalism becomes the result within Christianity, within the church, because I think the ultimate end of theological liberalism isn't Christianity anymore—at um, least at its ultimate end. Um, but but it's a response to enlightenment, and it's, a, it, it's okay. Let's rethink everything from an enlightened point of view. So. Now we're going to embrace the idea of theology from below. That that theology, you know, so so if if sola scriptura is theology from above, right? God has said. Where the uh, theological liberalism is going to say, no no no, it's a theology from from below. It's a theology of that the theology is based it's one step further from the enlightenment. It's not based only on intellect and reason it's based on experience so so my understanding of what I believe what we then believe because it was still collective back then um in the in the 19th century what we believe is based off of human experience human experience ends up becoming the arbiter and doctrine then was subjugated to experience now, do you see the pattern here at every one of these, at every one of these turns, right? It's um, in, in one case, Scripture is subjected to the authority of the Pope. In another case, Scripture is subjected to reason and intellect. In the, the next case, uh, uh, Scripture is subjected to uh, human experience. That, that's what, That's always what the challenge of the foundation of Scripture alone is going to do. And, and that's what happened in the 19th and early 20th century. There ends up being this big move of what was known as reconstruction of the church. Uh, everything from Jesus, like reconstructing Jesus, reconstructing our understanding of Jesus, embracing the... Um, Uh, the ideas of the enlightenment, that that Jesus didn't need to do miracles to be Jesus, that Jesus didn't have to actually die to be Jesus, that Jesus didn't have to be born of a virgin to be Jesus, that Jesus didn't have to rise from the dead to be Jesus. They really took all of the things away from Jesus that we think about when we think of Jesus. And slowly but surely, theological liberalism just peeled all of those things back. And and it became a, a completely different thing and, and so what you have now in, because some of you may ask, does this still exist today? Well, it does in in some parts, right? In some, because none of these things are monolithic and none of the expressions of them are monolithic. And so multiple mainline denominations stopped at different places along the way. So you can find theological liberalism in most of our mainline denominations today, but they, they stopped at different. Like, they, they went, okay, this is where we're comfortable. And some of them are just still just as extreme as you could possibly be. Um, some of them stopped along the way, uh, you know, debating human sexuality, debating um, homosexuality, de- debating transgenderism. Some of them stopped on what do we actually believe about Jesus. But, but you can see, like, they, they, it would, it would not, it's not just one thing. It's, it's one thing in these different expressions, and some of them went way, way far away. Some of them just went a little away, but ultimately all of them were reconstructing the ideas that were laid down in the Reformation. It was, a, it was really a reformation of the Protestant church. This time it was, it was the Protestant church's time to be reformed, and that's ultimately what happens during uh, the 19th century is you end up with a lot of churches that were founded by guys like Luther and John Calvin and, and others uh, who ended up walking away from many of the things those men taught, if not all of the things those men taught. There was a realignment with secular history, looking at the Bible and saying, well, the Bible says this and modern scholars tell us this. So modern scholars, you know, obviously must win. Um, Even though modern scholars often change their minds, new, new discoveries happen all the time that, it uh, changes the way modern scholars think about all of those things, um, ultimately leading to a response, like a conservative response, a conservative Protestant response in the mid, tw- uh, mid to late 20th century. Um, it led to the, to the um, uh, conservative resurgence in our own denomination. It led to, on a broader scale, what was known as the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy um, because the Protestant church was, in America particularly, was going to be lost at theological liberalism uh, and if, if it wasn't addressed. And it was ultimately addressed uh, by uh, kind of a coalition of fundamentalists, evangelicals, conservative uh, Protestants, uh, got together. You're, you're talking about conservative wings of Presbyterianism, conservative wings of Lutheranism, conservative wings of Baptist life, um, and others who got together and said, we, we've got to determine what we actually believe to be true about the Bible. And they did that in what's known as the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. Um, uh, I would encourage you to, to read that. It's, a, it's an interesting document and one that we, I believe, as a church uh, would uh, affirm. Our elders affirmed it when we joined the Pillar Network um, last last year. Leading to where we are now in postmodernity, right? And we're kind of in post postmodernity now. But postmodernity modernity um, Embraces relativism versus objective truth. Uh, it's not seeking to reconstruct; it's seeking to deconstruct. So it it builds off of the Enlightenment and um, and theological liberalism, and basically says, okay, it's not just our re- or it's not our reasoning and our intellect and our experience. Now it's mine. It's my reason. It's my intellect. It's my experience, and that truth is no longer objective, meaning we can't find it together, truth is only something that I can find. It's relative to me and my experience and my life and the way that I think and feel and whatever I ache today, right? That that's, that's what truth is. Postmodernism, while while uh, theological liberalism was seeking to re, uh, reconstruct, re, really reform in the same way that Luther did, the, um, was seeking to do with the Catholic Church during the Reformation, postmodernity is seeking to deconstruct. And this is still things that are happening today. It happened first in um, what was, in some cases, left of mainland Protestantism, but it's happening today uh, in evangelical circles. It is actually a major conversation, I would say, even in the, just the last two or three years, within evangelical Protestantism of you know young people coming out of our churches and using then the words deconstruction. That's a that's a very popular buzzword today. Uh, where people are deconstructing their faith. And to deconstruct something means to take it down to its pieces, not to seek to change it, but to take it down to its pieces and examine each one of those pieces and to determine for yourself which one of those pieces is true and which one's not. It doesn't matter if somebody else, like, and and my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. It's ultimately anti-authoritarian. So they would have agreed with Luther, by the way, same way the Enlightenment. People would have agreed with Luther, right? They would have agreed with him, and they would have went, "Yeah, the Pope's not my authority." But they would have also looked at Luther and said, "Neither are you, and neither is the Scripture, and neither is anybody else for that matter, and neither is God." I'm going to be my, I'm going to be my own authority. So, how can we help people? Like, as we think about sola scriptura, and we think about this doctrine, and we think about like the history and the time marching on. Ultimately, Sola Scriptura, compared to the other doctrines, it's really a self-fulfilling, like there is a self-fulfilling nature of this doctrine. And we need to, you just need to lean into that and admit it, okay? When people say, well, you can't use the Bible to prove that the Bible is true, you need to say, well, that's the only way that we can prove it. It's the only, way, it's the only thing that we can go to. Um, and I'm not really going to apologize for using the Bible to say that the Bible is true, because ultimately what we have to ask, the question that we have to ask is the question that Luther was asking. It's the question that the people in enlightenment were asking. It's the question that theological liberals were asking. It's the question that postmoderns are asking today. What is my authority? And that's the question you have to ask people. You have say, we have to do what these same people have done. You have to do what the church has done when challenged from exterior authorities regardless of what that exterior authority is, we have to do what the church has done. And we have to ask the question, okay, what do you think the authority should be? Is it you? Is it me? Is it the government? Is it some ecumenical body, some church body? What do you think it should be? Because it has to be something. And if it's the if it's my reason in the Bible, if it's my experience in the Bible, if it's our reason and our experience in the Bible, if it's some Pope or set of cardinals somewhere, regardless of what that is, ultimately what we're doing is putting authority, we're ascribing authority to a flawed group of people. Because I'm flawed. You're flawed. We're flawed. Our experiences are flawed. Our intellect is flawed. These things happen human reasoning is flawed if you think about what you know you go back to the 18th century and the things that they thought were absolute scientific truths and facts then are not in any way what people today would believe would be scientific they were still leeching people back then okay they they, they didn't understand like germs back then. i mean the Reason has changed significantly, right? Reason changes. Human experience is greatly varied. Human intelligence, our intellect changes all the time. Like These are things we we have to admit. And so then the question is, if I'm flawed and you're flawed and society is flawed, but God isn't, then what if we were to go to what he has said and believe what he has said as the ultimate authority on truth in our lives ultimately sola scriptura is a matter of faith and and let's just not apologize for that let's recognize that it's a matter of faith and let's teach people to believe in the bible according to faith and paul's right before paul dies we believe right before he died he was in prison he writes a letter um, to timothy it's the second letter to timothy And just before, I believe, a couple of weeks ago, or maybe last week, I read 2 Timothy 3.16, which talks about, you know, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, preaching, and rebuking, right? But before that, listen to what Paul says. He says, but as for you, continuing what you have learned, this is 2 Timothy 3.14 and 15, continuing what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now if we go to 2 Timothy 1, we know who Timothy learned these things from. Paul, sure, but not early in his childhood. Early in his childhood, it was his Jewish mother and grandmother who taught him the scriptures. So you know what we need to do? We need to follow in this example and teach people, teach children. Teach those in our church, teach those in our spheres who will listen to them. The scriptures, Paul ascribes value to Timothy having learned the scriptures at an early age. There's no better thing we can do for our children than to teach them that the scriptures are God's word and that they should rely on them above everything else they learn. And there's nothing wrong with them learning all these other things. We don't hide our kids from stuff. But recognize that there is an authority And that authority is God. And God has spoken to us. God chose in his wisdom to give us his written word. And that then becomes our authority. And there is value, great value, in teaching that to children because as we teach that to them as children, they grow up believing it. We also need to recognize that it's important for us to check our authorities that tempt us away from Scripture. You may be tempted by reason or intellect or experience, because these things aren't bad. Reason is not a bad thing. Intellect is not a bad thing. Experience is not a bad thing. But they can draw us away from Scripture. We should, I believe, challenge the things that we believe. I, I, I'm not, when people, there, there are people, and I keep up with these things. I think it's part of my job to keep up with these things. You know, I talked about deconstruction. There are people doing that, and I don't always think it's terrible, For young people, I think it's actually part of being a young person or even an adult at, at times of our lives to look at the things that we've been taught, look at the things that we hold true, and to ask questions and to say, is that still true? Is that actually true? I think the church should always be reforming. We should always be looking at ourselves as a church and saying, are we doing things that the Bible hadn't told us that we're supposed to do, but we've just been doing them because that's the thing that we've always done? And that applies to us as individuals as well. I think that's important. The Bible, I think, even encourages that. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, Paul writes, but test everything, hold fast to what is good. You've heard the phrase, you know, eat the meat, spit out the bones. I think we should do that in our lives. We should look at the things that we believe and test them. But what do we test them against? We test them against scripture. So are we allowing our own reason, our own intellect, our own experiences? Are we allowing those things to attack us? We don't even know it. Are we allowing them to chip away at the scriptures and we don't even realize it? If we are, then, then, then test these things, but test them not against your own understanding. Test them against scripture, right? Lean not on your own understanding. Lean, lean, on, lean on the word of God. Last thing I'll say, and I, know I recognize that amount of time, is we do have to be careful. Go all the way back to the 1500s. There was the idea of the infallible pope, Right? And you did not challenge the word of the Pope. The Pope still had the ability to burn you at the stake for being a heretic. You didn't challenge the Pope. Well, we don't really have that today. At least in our culture, we don't have that today. But we run the risk, I think, in conservative evangelical churches, Protestant churches like ours, of setting up many Popes all over the world where people just believe what the preacher said. We like the preacher. I hope you like a preacher, <laughs> right? Um, seems like a reasonably smart guy, decent at what he does. And you just take his take him at his word. You know, Pastor Ryan said it. I don't hear you guys say this a lot. I hope you don't say this out, you know. Pastor Ryan said it, so it must, must be true. No, 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 Let, let's no. Let's not bank on that. Let's go to the scripture every time. This is why I preach the way that I do. Because I hope at least I'm showing you biblical support for every word that I have to say from the pulpit. Um, Let's let's not set up a mini Pope in our own little system. And I think that is the the challenge of another doctrine that we're not talking about in this series called local church autonomy. I talked about it when I did Baptist distinctives a couple of years ago. Baptist distinctive, uh, one of our Baptist distinctives is local church autonomy. There's nobody that tells our church what to do. We could go off the rails theologically and nobody would tell us anything. Now, eventually, depends on what we did, the Southern Baptist Convention may de- defellowship us. You know how much that would matter? Not at all. It wouldn't change anything. I mean, it really wouldn't. Like, we'd actually get to keep, we, we wouldn't send them money anymore, right? I mean, um. And so, because we are independent, and I believe we're—I believe that's a good thing. I believe in local church autonomy, um, but it, we run the risk of of setting up our own little Catholic system, our own little pope, with our you know our own little cardinals, our small group leaders, our other elders. You know, setting up this little system. You can be careful with that. Let's always go to Scripture, no matter what I say, no matter what somebody else says. Let's be a church that always goes to Scripture because the Scripture alone is the Word of God. And it is the authority that we should lean on and that we should stand on. Here I stand, I can do no other, right? All right, let me pray for us. And then I'm gonna go, I'm gonna stay on. If you're on with us, um, let me just do this then I'll pray at the end. Let me do that. Cause I got, I got, um, I wanna talk about the next two weeks. So stay on, stay on live with us. We're still live, right, Brian? I know we've gone over. Okay. Um, next week, uh, Lord willing, I'm not gonna be here. Um, we, for, it seems like, Three years now, have been planning a tour of Israel, and uh, some people in our church and some people from a couple other churches uh, are going. You pray for us. Um, it's, it is a tour; it's not a mission trip. I mean, it's a tour. But uh, I did this a few years ago. It's a great experience. I would hope to be able to do it again sometime. If uh, you're not able to go, but we've got 37 people going, but we've all got to like avoid getting you know COVID, and we've got to get COVID tests when it's supposed to snow all weekend. Um, and then we got to get COVID tests when we get to Israel and and all that stuff. So just pray for us that we're able to do that and be able to, that these people that have been long, looking forward to this trip for a long time, uh, will be able to do it and it'll be good. But I won't be here next Wednesday. Um, But every quarter, we try to do a uh, prayer gathering anywhere where we pray corporately together through our prayer guide. And so that'll be next Wednesday. Uh, Brian and some of our other elders will lead us in that. Some really important things we've got to pray for, some stuff going on in Rwanda. We've got a team uh, going at the end of February. There's some things going on at Redemption Heights we're gonna pray for. We're gonna be voting together as a church. Um, to call a new pastor in February, write some very important things in the life of our church. Let's value prayer. And so we're going to do that next Wednesday night. And then uh, that's the 26th. And on February 2nd, I will be back. We come back that day. My plan is to be here. But listen, y'all don't want me to fly, do transatlantic flights and then try to get up here and teach. There's no telling what I'd say. Um, And so that worked out really good as an opportunity for you to hear Jadrian Haywood, who is, if you weren't here on Sunday, is the candidate for our pastor for adult discipleship and outreach. And he's going to teach that night. He and I met Monday this week and talked about uh, that Wednesday. And he's super excited, already knows what he's going to teach on. He's really going to try to give you a a glimpse into how he views scripturally the role of adult discipleship and outreach within the life of the local church. Uh, He's a very energetic guy. I think you're going to like him a lot. Uh, but it's going to be your first opportunity to really get to know him. You'll have some other opportunities to get to know him um, at a town hall the following Sunday, but make sure you're here. That would be one of, you know, those of you that watch us online, if you can make it that day, I would encourage you to be in the room, okay? Be here in the room that day um, because we're, we're calling a guy to do discipleship at our church, and we want to make sure this guy can teach, and we've seen him teach. We've we've seen videos of him teaching that he, he can teach, but um, my, my encouragement would you be, be be here in the room with us um, because that's going to be a big Wednesday and so we'll pick up in this series on, on the five Solas on February 9th. So you have two weeks next week, prayer gathering the following week uh, Jadrian is going to be teaching and then on February 9th we will be uh, back together. Uh, I'll be back teaching uh, this and, and I'm going to teach this uh, through uh, through Easter. All right, so let me pray for us and we'll, we'll conclude. God, thank you uh, for your word and that it is true to us um, and uh, that, it is, that it is the truth and that it makes us wise unto salvation. And then if we hide it in your heart, God, we would not sin against you. And so God, would you cause us to fall deeper in love with your word uh, because it through it, we fall deeper in love with you uh, and our savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us online. God bless you.